0: Welcome to the Omfith podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Omfith podcast. I'm Katie-Ann Wilson from Omfith Digital Monetary Institute, where we cover all things related to the future of money and payments. Today, we'll be covering a very important topic for so many people across the world. We'll be looking at remittance payments, specifically digital remittances, an essential lifeline for migrant workers to send money back home. I'm thrilled to be joined by a global renowned expert on this topic, Chad Harper, who's Global Payments Fellow from the Visa Economic Empowerment Institute. Welcome, Chad.
1: Thanks, Kitty Anne, good to be with you.
0: Thank you for being here. It's always great and really valuable to hear from you and your area of research. So today we'll be exploring some of your latest work on understanding the cost of remittances, as well as the impact of the pandemic on remittance trends and what they mean for the policy world. But before we get into this, I think we should take a little bit of a step back, and I'm really curious to understand a bit more about where you work. So you've got this Visa Economic Empowerment Institute, which I think works as a think tank within Visa. Can you just explain to us a bit how this works?
1: The Institute, or VEI as we sometimes call it, was announced and went live during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, the pandemic greatly accelerated digital life and commerce. We do original research on a variety of topics. One key theme is related to small business digitization and how vital digital capabilities were to small businesses as they attempted to adapt and thrive during the pandemic. And another series deals with the rise of digital remittances and how private sector innovation is improving global money movement. But we also have a goal of sharing Visa's practical insights gained from creating a global multi-currency retail payments network operating in 200 countries Visa has been at that for about sixty years. Some call us the original fintech, and there are useful things to share with payments policymakers from that experience.
0: The original fintech—I think that's like a great, a greater uh, heading for Visa. So you've you've got this mass load of experience from Visa, but you've definitely specialised in remittances, and I know that you've spent about. Twenty years, I think, at federal reserve banks. You know, San Francisco, Chicago, Richmond, where you must have covered everything from cash to financial services to payments as well. So I'm just curious, why why the focus on remittances?
1: Great. Well, remittances sit at a at an interesting intersection for the institute. You know, there's there's digital equity issues. There's trade there's global money movement, and all those are kind of the pillars of what the Institute is concerned with. These uh, relatively small, recurring, support-oriented transfers matter to a lot of people and to the countries uh, where they live. A billion people are somehow involved in remittances. So you've got 200 million people, migrant workers, who've who've made a sacrifice and have separated from their families, sending remittances back home to about 800 million people. And while these transfers are small, they add up to a lot. So in 2022 remittances accounted for $831 billion in expressed in U.S. terms and about 650 billion of this went to low and middle income countries so they're hugely significant for these countries. In fact, in in 2022, 29 countries received over 10% of their GDP via oh. these inflows, and seven countries received over 25% of their of their GDP. So remittances matter a lot to hundreds of millions of families and to dozens of countries. Gosh, 29 countries
0: of their GDP, that's, that's huge, really important, um, statistics there. So women's is growing in importance, and it's clearly very important for low and middle income countries, but I'm interested to know before we go into costs in more detail, what about the effects of the pandemic on remittances? Because obviously it was, we had this shift towards digitalization a bit more. People were reluctant to use cash. Um, So what what was some of the trends that you were seeing uh, after the pandemic on remittances?
1: Yeah, well, the pandemic accelerated digital life and commerce everywhere, and remittances were no different. Remittances had been steadily digitizing already. So if we look back about seven years, and think about uh, the middle of 2016, we would see that according to World Bank data, 75% of remittances would be traditionally initiated. This means that a migrant is going into a location, interfacing with someone to send uh, a remittance. And at the same time, about 12% of remittances were digitally initiated. So in some sort of unassisted online fashion, and 13% of, re- of remittances were digital end to end, which is really what we would ultimately like to see. They were initiated digitally and they landed digitally so they didn't get, uh, you know, they didn't, they, did, they were not received as cash. So that's 2016, and uh, but in 2021, really the first full year that we were in the global pandemic, we see a shift. We see an acceleration and a tipping point So between quarter one and quarter two of 2021, we see an eight percentage point shift to digital, which was greater than the yearly trend before then. So at that point, uh, we had 56% traditional remittances turn into 48% traditionally initiated remittances, meaning that for the first time, the majority of remittances were at least digitally initiated. And as of quarter three, 2022, the most recent quarter for which we've got uh, data, uh, 43% of remittances are traditionally initiated, you know, with the help of someone probably at a physical location. Uh, 26% of remittances are digitally initiated, but might land in cash and 31% stay digital. So that's great. Almost a third of remittances now are uh, digital and they stay that way.
0: And we think that's because people became more susceptible to using. Yeah,
1: yeah. uh, People adapted and business models for money transfer operators and other kind of uh, remittance service providers adapted. Uh, One can imagine that uh, apps got easier to use and uh, there was just a lot of uh, digital digital adaptation.
0: Really interesting development from the pandemic. And I suppose a, a silver lining. In the pandemic if more people are digitally enabled because
1: of it. that's that's right i will say though that if you look at the last few quarters of the data I, I was describing the the world bank data we have seen a bit of a flattening
0: okay
1: so uh so while there was adaptation things are kind of back on their pre-pandemic trend now and that there's not uh, kind of further rapid adaptation towards digital there's a little bit of a sideways movement right now and uh I, and lots of other people would like to see uh, further progress.
0: Definitely. Definitely. So we've discussed um, the impact of the pandemic on remittances. Let's look at the international stage now. And obviously, you know, very well, there's a G20 roadmap on cross-border payments. Right. Which lists cost along with speed access and transparency, as one well of the four key challenges. Um, I think this builds on the UN development goal, which aims to have uh, a cost for no more than 3% of a $200 remittance by 2030. So what's happening with the remittances costs? Are we making progress towards this?
1: Yes, and I should uh, maybe unpack what we mean by remittance costs a little bit. You described the sustainable development goal of having a remittance cost no more than 3% for a $200 remittance. That, that goal, at least the cost goal, was reaffirmed by the G20's uh, roadmap. But what does a 3% cost mean? Well, remittances have two costs that have to be added together to give us a full picture. There's a transfer fee, which is usually, uh, you know, a, a flat fee for a certain amount, certain dollar amount of a remittance. And then there's the foreign exchange margin on uh, the remittance. And that uh, is also expressible as a cost. So for instance, if you're sending a $200 remittance and you've got a $2 sending fee, but your foreign exchange margin costs turn out to be $8, then the cost of that remittance is $10, which happens to be 5% of the of the remittance, uh, the overall remittance amount. So you will hear policymakers talk in these percentages, but that's what it means. It's sending costs plus the foreign exchange margin equals the total cost of the remittance. Now, costs have been trending downward. So if we look at data as of Q1 2023, uh, we'll see that the global average cost of sending a $200 remittance is six and a quarter percent or about $12 and 50 cents. That's not great, Uh, but digital remittances cost less. So the World Bank has a digital remittance index and that as of Q1 sat at 4.72% or a little under $10 so quite a bit better. And there's also an average constructed by the World Bank that reflects what a savvy consumer with access to good information could pay And that is current as of as of of the most recent data was sitting at about three and a half percent cost or a little under seven dollars. So that's getting much closer uh, to the target. So why is the global average so much higher than these other indices? Cash. Cash is the reason. Uh, Cash sent remittances are still at seven percent cost. They were at eight percent over 12 years ago. And they've only come down one percent uh, over that uh, period. So cash is keeping uh, that average uh, high, and so a you know a key is to move away from cash, which inherently requires more touches and has to involve uh, some sort of human to human interaction. So that's that the, the, that among other reasons is why cash costs more.
0: Fascinating. So it's it's clear on the one hand that. The access to information is helping lower cost on that uh the savvy consumers and then on the yeah. other yeah using traditional cash means send remittances is just absolutely um skyrocketing skyrocketing the cost so how how is your institute then taking a new approach to this um i know that you've done some work on remittance costs and you have an approach that looks at it in a slightly different way to the world bank so can you just explain a little bit of what you've been working on and how it's differently
1: Absolutely. What I'll describe sounds easy, but it's fairly involved. The World Bank figures we talked about are derived from remittances that happened, and they are the definitive source of information for remittances that happened. Our World Bank colleagues track costs in over 300 corridors using tens of thousands of completed transactions. But we wanted to look into what might have been possible uh, at the same time. So um, a positive aspect of digital remittances is that consumers can shop around for options if they have digital tools, much like you and I might shop around online before making a purchase. I hardly ever make a purchase anymore without checking a few online options and then deciding which one to go with, or if I happen to be standing in the store to go ahead and do the uh, the physical transaction. So we examined the options available to a migrant worker or other consumer across 50 corridors, which we had just expanded this year from 25, using five global money transfer operators. Um, And so for our selected money transfer operators, a user is able to go to a corridor and model a remittance before sending it. So they can see the payment, you know, they can see the the transfer fee, they can see the foreign exchange information, And then they've got some payment methods available to them and some pickup methods available to their family that they can choose from. And so if a migrant worker went to uh, the the app of a money transfer operator, they might see three payment options and four pickup options. Well that creates 12 possible permutations of that remittance. And so if you think about, uh, 50 corridors and five uh, money transfer operators and all of these permutations. We actually gathered 2,700 cost records to to look at what might have been possible. So for each corridor, we've gathered an average of 54 remittance records, uh, and and then we took a look at what were the costs. You know what were the were there trends and the best funding method or the best pickup method or, are um, uh, a lot of things really dependent on the foreign exchange. So that's the, the type of research we did. Now, we did this for 200 and $500 remittances. We focused mostly in our paper on the $200 remittance yeah. and we computed the fees exactly like the world bank does. So we took the sending fee, we computed a dollar cost for the foreign exchange, And we added those together. And then in the paper, in the table, you'll see we expressed all of this as a percentage cost of the remittance. So we wanted our information to be easily comparable to what the the policymakers are seeing out there in the form of World Bank reports.
0: No, I think uh, your analogy on uh, shopping is a brilliant one. You're completely right. You definitely wouldn't buy anything these days without looking at all the different options on Amazon. But so you said that this corridor, whether well, you researched, had fifty-four options.
1: The average corridor did. Yeah, some corridors had more. Some corridors were less served, and we might only have a couple records. But if you uh, if you do if you do the math, twenty-seven hundred observations, fifty corridors. We usually had uh, over fifty observations per Ooh. corridor.
0: It's a yeah, a lot of good options out there for people. Yeah. Definitely. Um. Really useful finding. So. So you've you've managed to pinpoint this uh, importance of choice in remittances but yeah i'd love to understand a bit more what about the findings and the data highlights uh, after you chose this approach
1: yeah so uh, the 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 findings are are very interesting so across the 50 corridors our average remittance costs uh, came in at uh, just a little over four percent or under nine dollars So uh, generally in line, if you remember the costs I was giving from the World Bank, these definitely are in line with the digital remittance costs. Um, Our costs were actually under 4%. We took out one very high outlying corridor, Thailand to Myanmar, which was uh, having some foreign exchange issues at the time we looked uh, back in uh, late January and, and February. But of course, mean costs. Don't tell the important story because if you or I are a migrant worker sending money home, we don't care what the average of 50 corridors was. We care about our corridor. And uh, interestingly, uh, while, while the mean was over four for all these corridors, we did find an option costing less than 3%, that is less than $6, in 40 of the 50 corridors we looked at. So only four corridors of the fifty had costs uh, of more than five percent, which is also which is also uh, good news. So uh, while there's, you know, while there was a cost below three percent in eighty percent of our corridors, there's of course no guarantee that a migrant worker would have encountered
0: uh, yeah.
1: the the low costs. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you you know if the listeners. Uh, look at the table in our paper, the cost spreads in a given corridor can be quite striking. Uh, so the United, you know, the United Arab Emirates to Egypt corridor, for example, had a median and mean cost above 6%, but we found a cost of 2.88% or under $6.00. So making it really important that migrant workers have the, you know, the tools and skills to, uh, to look around. Um, there were several corridors where the highest and lowest costs varied even more significantly. UK to Nigeria, the highest cost was over 15%, over, you know, over $30 for a $200 remittance. But the lowest cost we found was 0.19% or yeah. 38 cents. So uh, again, a person without the tools to shop around could have encountered a very high fee or a very low one, and you know if they had executed that high cost transaction, that's the cost that would be reflected in World Bank data, not the the best cost that would have been possible. So that's why we looked at things the the way we the way we did.
0: So that's really important research because yeah, I think it, you've highlighted choice and education and research matter for people. Um, it, actually, the options are out there. They just can't see them or they don't have access to them. And if it's focusing on cash remittances, um, they won't have access to any of them at all because this is all digital remittance options, isn't it?
1: Yes. So so while digital is demonstrably better than cash, even among digital, there can be a lot of variation making it important to, to shop around. And, and KDN, we we found a couple other interesting observations that we couldn't reflect as data in a table, but that were still interesting and they involve kind of trade offs. Yeah. So we noted that uh, sometimes when we were looking at all the permutations of a remittance possible for a given corridor, that uh, some money transfer operators would offer two cost options for a bank account initiated remittance. So remittance initiated, you know, push pushing money from your bank account. Um, we found that there could be one cost for remittances that would be received by the family in a couple hours and perhaps a lower cost to be received in a a few days. Mm -hmm. So there were cost speed trade-offs, and who am I to say that a migrant worker would be unreasonable if they they wanted the cheaper but slower option in their particular circumstances? And there were also interesting cost and location uh, trade-offs for remittances still received in cash, There were sometimes uh, a cost if you wanted to, if your family member wanted to pick up the remittance in some store that the money transfer operator had a relationship with. But we occasionally saw that there was even a a differentiated cost for a preferred store from from the money transfer operator. And again, uh, provided that that preferred store happened to be convenient to the family, who am I to say that that's a you know unreasonable trade-off for the the migrant worker to make? So beyond finding uh, the best cost, there are some reasonable trade-offs that uh, that that a migrant worker could take advantage of.
0: Definitely, uh, convenience. Often, I think it's human nature for people to prefer convenience over maybe even a cheaper option. Yeah, you're not you're gonna yeah. go for the the store just near to you rather than an hour away or something like that.
1: Yeah, especially if for remittances, still picked up in cash. There are security considerations, so maybe the safety of the neighborhood where you're landing that remittance matters. Maybe uh, you know, maybe you want the one closest to home, or maybe one further from home that uh, happens to be where someone already goes to get groceries could be, uh, you know, could be the best option. So there are uh, many considerations.
0: Yeah, no, no, definitely, and then um, I think you said earlier that 40 out of the 50 corridors you found the lowest cost was under three percent, which actually does hit the target the US Yes
1: Yes so uh, so if we uh, in fact this this gets a little mathy, but if we only averaged the best cost we were able to find in each corridor, yes. uh, we would have we would have actually uh, hit the target across the 50 corridor. so yeah. it's it's rather striking.
0: It's very striking. That is very striking and really important actually for policymakers when considering the targets and how we actually achieve them um, and how we, I think, explain our aims. You mentioned that mean costs actually doesn't really tell the whole story. So exactly. How data is, is so important, I think, in this area. So you've got all these insights and we've, we're kind of uh, talking about it now, but Um, it makes me think then what should the public and private sector do now differently well what should their next steps be clearly we need to enable digital remittances and clearly we need to promote choice yeah what's the next step so
1: there are there are a few policy implications from uh, from from the the data highlights I described you know one you know one thing that's obvious is that the private sector is innovating and is innovating business models to continue to bring the cost of digital remittances down. Even as there's variation, which we want migrant workers to know about, the costs are definitely trending uh, uh, downwards. Um, now, in, in, in spite of the rosy picture I painted and being able to find a good price in 80% of our corridors, there are still compliance frictions and licensing issues with remittances that's that need attention from policymakers. But much of that attention is being given in the context of the G20 roadmap initiatives. The FSB, the Financial Stability Board, and the Committee on Payments and Market Infrastructures at the the BIS are working on these issues. Uh, We do need to enable more digital remittances for more corridors. And there are compliance frictions to resolve and licensing issues to streamline that would enable these lower costs in even more corridors. Uh, There was a report last year from the World Bank that highlighted that just getting licensed to operate uh, in a new market, if you're a remittance service provider, could take a couple years. And if you're a small, innovative, uh, Mm -hmm. scrappy remittance service provider, you might not have the resources to go through that process in as many markets as you would like. So resolving those, those licensing Frictions and delays would be great. But also, uh, policymakers and the private sector should continue to focus on digital opportunity, skills, and trust. Now, our what might have happened uh, research highlights the importance of uh, of digital tools to find the best price, but skills are needed to really effectively compare the options. So as I described our research, there there was some math involved. And uh, we want to make sure people are are equipped to best compare those options. Now, uh, this leads right into my next point. More can be done, uh, I believe. This is my view, not not that of Visa or the Institute. Uh, More can be done on transparency. So uh, it's it's marvelous. It's a a modern marvel that uh, someone can go to these sites or apps and model a remittance before sending it. And they are giving, you know, the, the the MTOs, the money transfer operators are giving great visibility into the fixed cost of sending a remittance. And they are giving, uh, I would call it good information on the foreign exchange.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, in that, if I'm sending a, a remittance from the US to Mexico, for instance, I know the, 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 the sending fee and I know how many pesos are gonna land with my family. But do I know how to convert uh, how many pesos are gonna land with my family into a dollar cost that I can then add to the sending fee and get a really good picture of the total cost? Because if I'm comparing options among providers, it's the total cost that matters. So I think uh, transparency you know, could get better it would be great, for instance, to reach a point where a migrant worker would be given the cost of the remittance expressed as a total a total dollar cost, even if it's not a percent. You know, the percentage cost is something policymakers probably yes, think. Yes, definitely, yes. But a total dollar cost would be great. And then you could more readily compare options. And then, you know, the last implication I'd like to, to draw out is that it it's completely rational, In spite of, you know, say you're a migrant worker, you've got excellent transparency, you've uh, compared four or five costs, it might still be completely reasonable for you to choose uh, the slightly higher cost, depending on uh, your relationship with that money transfer operator. Uh, depending on your trust
0: Definitely.
1: Uh, in that uh, MTO. And so while most people might prefer to send a $200 remittance at a uh, you know a cost of 38 cents compared to $30, to use that extreme example I highlighted earlier, it might be completely reasonable for someone to send a $5 remittance, with a, an MTO they trust and regularly use, as opposed to a $4.50 one with this new provider that they you know, just popped up onto their radar. But what's critical is that these trade-offs uh, be made on the basis of good information. They should be made with eyes wide open. And, um, and we highlight these, these trade-offs more in another paper we put out uh, this year called let's give a voice to end users and uh, we you know while it's entirely reasonable for the fsb to focus on four attributes as you highlighted earlier we've identified over 20 attributes that end users might care about uh, between payment and product attributes so uh, trade-offs are very reasonable but they need to be made on the basis of good information
0: yes and we'll put the the link to that report as well as your main one um, on our web page and blurb But I think um, the reality is almost that cost then becomes a result of the needs and even less of an attribute. Yeah.
1: I mean, remittances are probably one of the better cases for cost sensitivity, uh, given that ultimately you're wanting the money to get to your your family. Uh, But trust still matters. And there's research showing that trust is the most important thing. Then you start looking at cost. Uh, But you can imagine for other types of payments outside of remittances, where cost is really the result of yeah. meeting your needs and wants. And maybe if, you know, if you're ordering a, uh, a luxury item uh, via e-commerce, you might be super interested in your ability to, uh, to return that item or to get a refund if it's, if it's damaged. So that's a lot different than sending $200 to your family. And so um, cost in that context becomes... Uh, the result of all the things you want out of that transaction.
0: It certainly does. It certainly does. Um, And just briefly on your point um, on digital tools uh, available to shop around between different MTOs. Does this exist at all or to your knowledge?
1: There, um, There are some aggregation site so the the basic digital tool someone needs of course is a is a probably a smartphone oh,
0: oh yes but i mean it's, yeah. it's an app that then somehow right
1: but there are aggregator sites that i've seen um i will say that uh that those sites have become a little harder to use since we started doing this research um i'm not sure if if money transfer operators are addressing security issues uh but uh we've we've seen that that even our what-if research has become a little harder the last two years, in that uh, our research partner DevTech Systems uh, actually needs to, in some cases, pretend that they are in the sending country, uh, you know, using VPN tools, uh, so that they can then simulate what a migrant worker might experience from that sending country to a uh, receiving yeah. country so so the the research has become challenging uh likely in part just to uh, everybody trying to make their security better because again the pandemic shifted life and commerce online and of course that shifted fraud and cyber crime online as well
0: definitely definitely well it goes to your point that better tools better education better skills probably there yes not a not a one, uh, one-stop one shop for that then the skills to choose and yeah uh, calculate is more important than ever and uh, yeah let's work on this so really really useful point just one final question before i let you go yeah where are you going with your next research what's next after this paper
1: so uh, we'll keep we'll keep looking into our corridors and doing the type of modeling that we have been. I think the what if the what was, would have been possible research is very interesting. Um, but we're going to look into another aspect as well. So I described earlier that remittances tended to be support oriented payments, and so that means that you want your family to receive funds to buy you know supplies and goods. There might there might uh, also be a savings component where you 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 know you might send a remittance and want your family to save that remittance, but for the remittances that are support oriented, um, there's actually a, a a possible alternative, and we think that that more migrant workers are taking advantage of this alternative, and we'd like to look in look into it more. That is, if you're a migrant worker sitting in you know a country and you happen to have. Uh, access to digital payments. Um, And and then your family is in the receiving country, and that receiving country has seen a proliferation of online marketplaces, probably accelerated by the pandemic. So um, in that instance, why couldn't the migrant worker Uh, using their digital payment capability, buy supplies and goods from that local, to their family, online marketplace and have those goods delivered to the family. So that accomplishes the mission of a remittance, but rather than being a person-to-person transfer of money, it's a cross-border e-commerce purchase. And so there are possible advantages of that to the migrant worker. And uh, that's something we'd like to explore more. And um, given, our, given, given our perch at Visa, we might have uh, access to some, to, to some data that would shed light on that. So that's something we'd like to look into more. You know, it's possible that five or 10 years from now, we might see remittance flows look like they're flattening or trending down, but there could be this substitution of cross-border e-commerce making up the difference. And so uh, we'd like to, to try to gain insights on that.
0: Yeah, I think with more digital, digitally savvy young people, that's the kind of exactly the kind of thing that they'd be wanting yeah. to do. Like a young student, you know, here wanting to send money to back home, they they rather do a shop, maybe a food shop, or something. That's
1: exactly, and they might get more control over the spend. Of course, you know, yeah. if you're sending money, who knows what yeah. happens. <laughs> Uh, but if you're buying the supplies and having them delivered, you know what happens.
0: That's well, very, very exciting and interesting. Well, we'll follow that in great details. But thanks so much, Chad. I think clearly the, the VEI, the Institute, is doing some really important work unpacking these goals and targets and also creating some real practical steps, I think, to help well, the global, uh, global industry and players in public and private sector work towards these targets. You can download Chad's paper, The Power of Choice, Options and Trade-offs for Digital Remittances. It's in the blurb, um, underneath the podcast and on the website. Thanks so much, Chad.
1: And thank you, Katie-Ann, and uh, always happy to engage in a dialogue or to answer any questions folks might have.
0: Thanks again, and don't forget to subscribe to us for more On Thrift podcasts. Thank you for listening to the On Fifth podcast.